Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Battered by Hurricane Maria, rattled by strong earthquakes, deprived of electricity for months on end, you'd think that Puerto Rico would have been in terrible shape to handle a pandemic, but quite the opposite, it's doing better than the rest of America. And there have been a lot of theories as to how the Earth got all its water, but none of them ever quite lined up with the data. We look at new research that suggests a fascinating possibility. The answer, my friends, may be blowing in the solar wind. First up, though. There was a familiar scene outside America's Supreme Court yesterday as dueling protesters camped out, chanted, and prayed. Inside the court were the first hints that some constitutional bedrock of abortion rights might be about to crumble. We will hear argument this morning in case 191392, Dobbs versus. The justices heard arguments on a Mississippi law that bans abortions after 15 weeks. It flies in the face of current constitutional standards, first set in 1973 with the Roe versus Wade ruling. But with a 6 to 3 conservative supermajority on the bench, those standards, and with them nearly 50 years of abortion rights, look increasingly fragile. The law that came before the Supreme Court on Wednesday is the Gestational Age Act. It bans abortion at 15 weeks of pregnancy and has exceptions only in cases of severe fetal abnormality or danger to a woman's health. It does not have exceptions for rape or incest. Stephen Maisie is The Economist's Supreme Court correspondent. The law has never gone into effect as it has been blocked as unconstitutional by lower courts. But this law was not designed to take effect. Mississippi legislators knew it would be struck down because it bans abortion about two months earlier than Roe v. Wade and subsequent decisions permit. Roe and the Casey decision from 1992 say that abortion cannot be banned before the fetus is viable, which is at about 24 weeks. So this was an attempt to get the court to reconsider Roe and Casey and potentially to overrule them. And what were some of the arguments that were made yesterday? Mississippi said that Roe versus Wade is wrong and should be overturned entirely because it has no basis in the Constitution. Uh, a right to abortion is, is not grounded in the text and it's grounded on abstract concepts that this court has rejected in, in other contexts as supplying a substantive you right. Say that, uh, the challengers, meanwhile, the sole remaining abortion clinic in the state, said in their brief that there are no half measures here. 
In the hearing, Julie Rickleman, their lawyer, said even reducing the right to abortion will turn back the clock on women's autonomy. And in fact, the data has been very clear over the last 50 years that abortion has been critical to women's equal participation in society. It's been critical to their health, to their lives, their ability to... Only one person in the courtroom seemed interested in a middle way, and that was Chief Justice John Roberts. He has found crafty ways out of tight spots before, but with the court shifting to the right, he's no longer the median justice who can swing a case one way or the other. So if the chief justice can't find one of his crafty ways out, what what are some of the ways this could go? There are really three theoretical possibilities here. The first is that the court could overrule Roe entirely, enabling states to ban abortions at any point. Second, the court still could throw out the Mississippi law. Third, although it did not seem to be a popular choice at all during the hearing, the court could try to find some middle ground where they uphold the Mississippi law and Roe versus Wade, but discard viability and try to find some other standard. The lawyer for Mississippi said the court could use the undue burden standard without a time limit, which would mean that Laws like Mississippi's would be okay because a substantial majority, something like 85% of abortions, take place by 15 weeks. And since the Mississippi clinic only provides abortions up to 16 weeks, there's not a huge additional burden in terms of numbers. But as the lawyer for the clinic said, that's like saying it's fine to say that people can go to church every night of the week except for Wednesday, because that doesn't affect too many people. It would ultimately boil down to an argument that states can prohibit a category of women from exercising a constitutional right merely because of the number of people in the category. And that's just not That's not, she said, how constitutional rights work. What about your view? How do you think this is going to pan out? Well, I never thought there was any real chance that Mississippi's law would simply be struck down, that abortion rights would emerge unscathed. The fact that they're hearing the case at all shows that there's some appetite to limit this right. Before the hearing, my hunch was that Justices Brett Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett or both might be interested in a kind of centrist coalition with Chief Justice Roberts to uphold the law and dial back abortion rights without a wholesale reversal of this 50-year-old precedent. But both of these recent additions to the court said things that are hard to reconcile with that strategy. Justice Kavanaugh kept saying he thinks the Constitution is neutral. It's neither pro-life nor pro-choice. Because the Constitution is neutral, that this court should be scrupulously neutral on the question of abortion, neither pro-choice nor pro-life. We should leave it to the states and we should... Justice Barrett, meanwhile, pointed to safe haven laws that theoretically allow women with unwanted babies to drop them off at hospitals without being charged with child abandonment. She said this mitigates the harm on women's careers and lives if there are no abortion rights left. Now, these are the comments of justices who see no justification and no need for a constitutional right to abortion. So if this Mississippi law cutting off abortion after 15 weeks is ruled constitutional, how much would it change abortion in America more widely? Radically. It does depend a bit on how Mississippi wins. If the court does what it seems it doesn't want to do, which is to erase viability but keep Roe, the immediate impact on Mississippi would not be earth-shattering. Women would have one fewer week to have a protected abortion, 15 weeks, not 16 
But there is no chance Mississippi or other states would stop there. They would and will and have already passed bans at 12 weeks, at 10 weeks, at 6 weeks, as in Texas. And a great deal of confusion would ensue as to which of these bans are constitutional. Now, if Roe is overturned completely, there will be less confusion, but an immediate series of total abortion bans in at least 22 states. 40% of women of childbearing age would see their nearest clinic close. So if what seems likely comes to pass, that they throw out the precedent completely, what effect is that going to have, do you think, on how Americans view the court? It feels surreal that America seems to be on the cusp of just ripping apart 50 years of a constitutional right that people have come to rely upon. But that is, in my view, yes, the likeliest outcome. During the hearing, Justice Kavanaugh listed a string of other cases where the court had overruled precedent. Brown v. Board outlawed separate but equal. Baker v. Carr, which set the stage for one person, one vote. West Coast Hotel, which recognized... He was clearly trying to say, look, we reverse ourselves when we realize we were wrong. We do it not infrequently. So walking away from Roe fits into that tradition. But boy, did this provoke the liberal justices. Justice Sotomayor wondered if the court will survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts. If people actually believe that it's all political, how will we survive? How will the court survive? Now, all of this is on John Roberts' mind, too. It doesn't really seem it's on the minds of his colleagues to the right. Even though the decision would come next June, smack in the middle of the midterm elections, nothing would mobilize Democrats more than a Supreme Court decision stripping abortion rights out of the Constitution. So it seems certain we'll be talking about this again in the future. But in the interim, I know that you'll be co-hosting our sister show, Checks and Balance, this weekend and talking about exactly this point, the politicization of the court. Yes, indeed I am. We are going to explore other fascinating cases that have received less coverage this autumn, including one argued in November that involves both the death penalty and religious liberty. We're going to look at a surprise gay rights ruling in 2020 that was anchored by one of Donald Trump's appointees. And that'll be out tomorrow, wherever the right to podcast is constitutionally protected. Stephen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. A word of thanks to the many people who have taken our survey. We appreciate it. If you haven't weighed in, we'd still love to hear from you. What you like, what you like less, what you'd like to hear more or less of. Head over to economist.com slash intelligence survey, or just click the link that's in the notes for today's show. Thanks a lot. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. The California and San Francisco Departments of Public Health and the CDC have confirmed that a recent case of COVID-19 
among an individual in California was caused by the Omicron variant. Anthony Fauci, chief medical officer to President Joe Biden, announced America's first detection of the Omicron variant yesterday. As in so many places, Omicron has given new urgency to what have become old ideas. Get vaccinated if you're not already vaccinated. Get boosted. And all the other things we've been talking about, about getting your children vaccinated, masking in indoor congregate settings, etc. As vaccination efforts stall and mandates get hung up in the courts, a lot of American states do need reminding. But one U.S. jurisdiction clearly got the message long ago. Infection rates have stayed low and vaccination rates are high on the island of Puerto Rico. During the pandemic, I've traveled both domestically and internationally. Puerto Rico was a completely different experience. You could tell that Puerto Ricans were taking this really seriously. The Economist's U.S. policy correspondent, Tamara Jilks-Bohr, visited the American territory's capital to find out what it's been doing differently. When I arrived at the airport in San Juan, Puerto Rico, I was struck by the level of organization and the amount of security. Before taking off, I had to upload my vaccination card to a website, which produced a QR code. When you walk through, you see basically three separate lines. You see um, a QR code to the right, a QR code in the middle, and then the left line with people lined up with computers and hazmat gear. When I landed, a gentleman in a hazmat suit asked me for my ID and my QR code. Then later that night, when I went to dinner and when I checked in to my hotel, I was once again asked for my QR code. Even Uber drivers at times took precautions. One driver spritzed hand sanitizer on my hands as I entered the Uber. And if I'd ask you in March 2020, when when everything really kicked off, how resilient you thought Puerto Rico would be as regards to the pandemic, what would you have said? Yeah, if you had looked at the state of Puerto Rico at the beginning of the pandemic, it really looked like the island was going to be in trouble. All eyes are once again on the Atlantic Ocean, where Tropical Storm Maria is now Hurricane Maria. The winds are ferocious right now, gusting above 120 miles per hour, severing the tops of the palm trees and ripping off the boarding that's on buildings. There's a- Hurricane Maria had killed almost 3,000 people in 2017, and it took almost a year for everyone to get power back. And people are still dealing with power that goes in and out. To make matters even worse... This was felt across the island, the most powerful earthquake yet, followed by a swarm of at least 11 more. In late 2019 and early 2020, there were several strong earthquakes that hit the island. Not only was electricity knocked out, not only were homes destroyed, but the earthquakes had some serious impacts on the health system. Many clinics closed because of the earthquakes, and many medical professionals had left the island, about 15% of them. And if you look at the demographics of the island, this is an island that is extremely impoverished, much more so than the mainland U.S., and many of the younger people have left for work on the mainland, which makes the island's demographics skew older. And given all that, when the pandemic did come knocking, how, how did the island respond? Two days after the first known case of COVID, the governor instituted 
a strong lockdown. Asimismo, he ordenado establecer un toque de queda para todos los residentes de Puerto Rico. There was a curfew and people received fines and jail time if they disobeyed. They also restricted who could travel to the island and through which airports, and they instituted quarantines. And even well into the vaccination campaign, they continued these COVID restrictions. And how has the vaccination effort gone in in Puerto Rico? The vaccination effort has gone really well. They have a higher vaccination rate than all of the American states. The misfortune of of these disasters after disasters has actually helped them um, to bounce back better. And, and to be able to help themselves a lot more than what they might have been able to do in the past. So really- I spoke with Bryce Acosta. He worked for the Federal Emergency Management Agency in Puerto Rico to get his thoughts on why Puerto Rico was so successful. And he pointed to the importance of the grassroots vaccination effort. But Puerto Rico here had, um, or even has really currently, hundreds of providers available. Even on this island with its three somewhat million people, Hundreds of providers are available from... The National Guard made vaccines widely accessible. They went door to door, they went to nursing homes, and they were even vaccinating people at bars and beaches. He also mentioned that politics, or the lack thereof, was particularly important. Because Puerto Ricans are largely shut out of American politics, they don't cut along traditional red and blue lines. You know, Puerto Rico and its, and its uh, voting status, right, red and blues, don't necessarily go here. They have their own color scheme for their politics here. Many also credited the strong child immunization program on the island. So now about three quarters of the island's population is fully vaccinated, while America's average is about 60%. And I suppose the the other thing that we've seen having positive effects around the world is that Puerto Rico is an island. Right. And many other jurisdictions that are detached from the mainland, Alaska, Hawaii, the Virgin Islands, for example, have also had low case rates and low death rates per capita. But recently, Alaska, Hawaii, and the Virgin Islands have all seen a surge in their hospitals. Their hospitals have been overwhelmed with COVID patients, but that has not happened in Puerto Rico. And many attribute that success to their strong vaccination campaign. And so are there there any lessons that uh, the rest of the U.S. can, can take from this or indeed other countries can take from how Puerto Rico has dealt with things? Puerto Rico shows what can happen when a country, its government, and its people take COVID seriously, but it also shows what can happen when a pandemic is not politicized, when wearing masks, when social distancing, when getting vaccinated does not somehow signal your political party affiliation. Tamara, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Seen from space, one feature of the Earth really stands out. The oceans. 71% of this pale blue dot is covered by them to an average depth of three and a half kilometers. That is a lot of water. But the early Earth was bone dry and red hot, so all that water must have arrived later. 
where it arrived from has been the question. So there have been a number of theories about how water came to the Earth. But the latest one is that about half of our water may have come from dust. Alok Jha is a science correspondent for The Economist. Scientists reckon that nearly half of the water on Earth might have arrived inside tiny, tiny particles of dust that rained through the atmosphere throughout the planet's history. Literal space dust. After wondering where it all came from, it's, it's tiny rocks. They just arrive from space, really. Yeah, that's exactly right. So at the beginning of the solar system, when the sun was very young, it was surrounded by clouds of dust and gas. So the Earth formed from coalescing of, the, of this stuff. That region around the sun was incredibly hot and incredibly dry. So you'd think that there was no water in that at all, but a planetary geoscientist called Luke Daly at the University of Glasgow happens to have got a sample and found that it contains significant amounts of water underneath the surface of the particles. But dust isn't something you normally think about being wet. Well, it turns out that the space dust has been blowing around the solar system for billions of years by the solar wind. Now, the solar wind is essentially a stream of energetic charged particles, protons. And every time the protons hit the bits of space dust, they change its chemical composition, creating water underneath the surface through various chemical reactions. And over billions and billions of years, these particles of space dust have created a water-rich layer, a tiny water-rich layer underneath. And if you scale that up, that's a lot of water. So that's the new theory, but you suggest there have been then others before. Yeah, so the Earth was completely dry. Obviously now it's covered in oceans, so where did that water come from? One idea has been that it could be comets. These are just essentially snowballs that exist on the edge of the solar system now, and perhaps these comets rained down on the early Earth. Another idea was that it could be a type of asteroid called carbonaceous or C-type asteroids. These contain quite a lot of water in themselves, and perhaps these things rained down on the Earth at some point and brought with them lots of water. And so what's wrong with, with either of those theories? We've had sample return missions from comets and that have sampled the water. And when you look at the water in those, they don't match. And what I mean by that is that they don't have the right isotopes of hydrogen. So water on Earth comes in two forms. It's normal water, which we know and love, hydrogen and oxygen. And then there's heavy water, which is deuterium and oxygen. And deuterium is just a heavy form of hydrogen with an extra neutron in its nucleus. By measuring the ratio of normal water to heavy water, you get a fingerprint. The problem with both asteroid water and cometary water is it's a bit too much deuterium. So if they ended up on Earth, what you need is another source of water that has much, much less deuterium. And so the idea is that, that space dust is, is just that kind of water? Exactly right. So the hypothesis is that the space dust is actually the source of the rest of the Earth's water. And to make the calculations right, the scientists in this study have calculated that to match the isotopic fingerprint of the Earth's water, you need about half of it to come from this space dust. So that solves a mystery, but also provides possibly a resource. This dust, as you say, is, is still knocking around since the, the earliest days of, of the solar system. Yeah, there's loads of this dust still around, and it's blowing around the whole solar system. And it means that wherever this dust can go, there's essentially a renewable source of water. And whether that's the surface of the moon, surfaces of asteroids, anywhere else, especially in the inner solar system. Very, very fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. And if you're an astronaut that happens to be traveling around in deep space and you need a source of water, whether it's to drink or to make rocket fuel, then you could just heat up some of this dust and there's just plenty of water in there. So that's quite positive. 
There's something else intriguing about this study that I found, which is that it gives the sun a very special role in life on Earth. We know that the sun is the ultimate source of all of the energy that keeps life going through things like photosynthesis and so on. But also it shows that the sun actually provides some of the material of life itself. So half of the protons in the water on Earth, and that includes in all life forms inside you as well, listening to this, half of those protons came directly from the sun. We are literally stardust. We really are. I mean, everyone says they're literally stardust stuff, but did you know that we're made of the sun? Like, did you know that? Awesome. Alok, thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome, Jason. for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The links to subscribe and to take our survey are in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.